This thing called democracy is very fragile. We run the risk of having it rolled back, erased, and that's why our study of history is just so important. Delving deeply into what has transpired in our country is going to be so critical to how we put together our future. Welcome to this very special recording of Cambridge Forum. We're coming to you live from the Lincoln Institute for Land Policy in Cambridge. It's very special for a lot of reasons. One, it's a watershed, an acknowledgement of Cambridge Forum's work over the past 50 years, covering various aspects of black history, but also a current and candid discussion of what remains ahead. I can think of no one better to talk about this than Cambridge councillor Denise Simmons. She's devoted a good portion of her working life to chronicling and celebrating black history. Welcome, councillor Simmons. Black history on rewind, what an important topic. When I think about this exercise in, in 2022, after all that we have been through, it's been an unquestionably fraught, tumultuous era. I think, I end up speaking for myself, we're still recovering from one of the most turbulent presidencies this nation has ever known. I don't know if we even recovered. Still contending with those aftershocks. We're in the process of the trauma of coming through a, a pandemic. It's really a lot for us all to take in. And as difficult and turbulent, this uh, the presidency of President Biden's predecessor has made it for us all it has forced us to look at some very important truths. Truths about this country. Truths about how fragile our institutions are, how fragile democracy is. You know, what remains, what came out of the civil rights movement? Where are we now? Have we moved far enough? Or have we moved far but are being push back. One thing that's very, very clear to me, that this thing called democracy is very fragile. And that if we don't work very hard to keep it, we run the risk of having it rolled back, erased, even removed. And that's why our study of history is just so important. That delving deeply into the things that have happened here, having an honest reckoning of what has transpired in our country is going to be so critical to how we put together our future. And where better to take that journey but right here in, in Cambridge? We are steeped in history here. We're the city where General Washington first assumed control of the Continental Army. The city where ideas around the abolition of Slavery firmly took root in the equality of women, where these discussions, these movements, these opportunities were advanced. For centuries, it has all happened right here in Cambridge. Our streets are rich and imbued with a rich history that is forever reverberating forward. The ghosts of, past, of the past are never truly done with us, however, because those stories that have been passed down from generation to generation that have shaped our understanding. Well, in a way, these stories are very critical, and we tend to name 
elements of our public spaces in honor of those who've had a prominence in our history. But it's also important to have a discussion about who we have looked over, who we have marginalized, who we have forgotten, who stands in the shadows of our history. And I think it's important upon us as a city, it's incumbent upon us as a city to not only to, ration, to, to reason with that, to grapple with it, to recognize it, and to course correct it. And so I can't be more pleased to be here this evening as we have this important conversation, as we turn the soil, where we dig down. Because the fact that we acknowledge women and black people and people of color, you know, we have Women's History Month and Black History Month. And I think that has given us an excuse to say, oh, we, we've covered all the bases. You know, you know, we're, we've talked about women, we've talked about black folks, we have Gay History Month. But that is not an excuse. It's an opportunity for us to do more. So I can't be more thrilled to be here this evening. I look forward to the discussion. Thank you, Councillor Simmons. Now it's time to introduce our speakers and our moderator. Randall Kennedy, Harvard Law professor, appeared at the forum back in 2002 when he had first published Nigger, The Strange Career of a Troublesome Word. 20 years later, he has just reissued the book, unchanged except for the foreword, in conjunction with a new book, Say It Loud. Cheryl Townsend Jilks is Professor of African American Studies and Sociology at Colby College and Assistant Pastor at Union Baptist Church in Cambridge. She first appeared at the forum in 2001 when she published If It Wasn't for the Women, which looked at the role of black women and the church within the civil rights movement. Professor Jilks is currently working on a book about the horrors of slavery. Daniel Allen is director of the Edmund J. Safra Center for Ethics at Harvard and is both a classics and a government scholar. Welcome to you all and thank you for making the time. And now let me introduce you to our moderator, Roberto Mighty. He's a public TV producer and filmmaker who directed the PBS documentary Legacy of Love about the relationship between Martin Luther King and Coretta Scott King. Without further ado, let me give it over to you, Roberto. Well, on my way here today, I was driving along listening to the radio, and I heard the very first part of the confirmation hearing of Judge Katanji Brown Jackson. And I have to say, I got a little choked up there. And uh, luckily, there weren't other people in the adjacent lanes as I was driving. <laughs> but why was it so emotional for me? And I'm just going to throw this out as we begin our conversation. What's happened in America that brings us to this point? Um, in 2022, the very first time that an African-American woman is being um, nominated for um, Supreme Court justice, what brought us to this point? Why, why is this so important? Um, who would like to begin with this one? Hmm. I'll take a shot. Thank you. I, I can imagine you're feeling choked up because I felt choked up too. And I think that there are two things that are going on. Uh, one, why has it taken so long? So the fact that this is a first says something that's, uh, that's, that's an indictment of our country. 
and uh, that's something about which everyone should be very sad. We all know why, and it has to do with uh, race, it has to do with gender, and uh, there's a very, you know, there, there's sad tales to be told about that history. On the other hand, that's right, she's gotten this far, mm -hmm. and there is a tremendous struggle that has been waged to make this day possible. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a reason why a lot of people feel very happy. Um, and so, you know, we, we, we see this not only today, but probably we see it, you know, every day. We see it in lots of different contexts. On the one hand, the sad tale of uh, the betrayal of democracy in America. At the same time, we do see we do see breakthroughs. We do see progress. I mean, I bet that uh, I bet that she will be confirmed, and that will be wonderful. And uh, you know, we, we we see these marks of progress, and so I think that it's it's those two things conjoined that I I bet has something to do with with your being choked up, and I'm sure they have something to do with my being choked up. That's fantastic, Cheryl. Among your many writings is writings about the role of black women in the church. When Judge uh, Katanji Brown Jackson was uh, speaking today, she used the word God several times, and she spoke about her faith and how important her faith is. With your background as a pastor at a Baptist church here in Cambridge, and also as a scholar, what do you think, you know, again, bringing us to this moment, not really speaking about her, I don't really want to get into her um, confirmation hearings too much, but what leads us to this point? Well, one of the things that I enjoyed reading her biography was her skill as an orator, as a debater, and the traditions within the African-American experience which had encouraged people to lift up their voices, to raise their voices, and to realize that this woman, who is a champion debater, falls into the tradition of Barbara Jordan, who was a champion debater. She, there's a, what we would call a parachurch organization. The Interdenominational um, Church Ushers Association has a series of scholarship contests that start at the local level, go to the regional level. Once a year, it's piano. Once a year, it's voice. But then the third year, it is oratory because if you can't sing, if you can't play an instrument, you can stand up and speak. And you write an essay, memorize it, and deliver it. Mm -hmm. And it goes, as I said, local, regional, and then national. And Barbara Jordan was a national winner. And we know the consequences there. Dorothy Height, another woman who came through the African-American tradition of mm -hmm. oratory, she was the national winner from the Black Elks. Mm -hmm. And... That gave her a four-year scholarship, and she applied to Barnard, and she arrived. She was accepted. She arrived, and she walked in with her papers, and they told her that, we're sorry, but we have a quota, and the other person got here first. Mm -hmm. You'll have to wait a year. And she took all of her papers and got on the subway and went to NYU and walked into the admissions <laughs> office. Can't do that nowadays, but here is this wonderful woman. She goes, and she shows them her credentials, and they admit her on the spot. She finishes in three years, and the Elks tell her, well, you still have another year on your scholarship. 
scholarship and she gets her graduate degree. And we know what Dr. Dorothy Hyde has yes. done. So yes. when I read about her story, I saw those stories, the various women um, who had Nanny Helen Burroughs, whose voices even though there were exclusionary practices toward them as ministers, for instance, they still found a way to get their voices heard and to encourage young people to raise their voices. Somebody came to my office one day. They wanted to interview me about my, you know, because I'm up there in Maine and, you know, I'm a little bit of an oddball. <laughs> and they wanted to know, well, how does your work here at the college, the le your leadership role, affect what you do at church? And I said, it's the other way around. Mm -hmm. My church trained me for my roles here. Mm -hmm. It's being a Baptist mm -hmm. and going to meetings, going to conventions, having a Sunday school superintendent who insisted that the young people go to conventions, take notes, and come back and give oral reports to the mm -hmm. church. That was the kind of cultural capital that was poured into us even when we didn't have doors open to us. And so when I read her biography, I was like, you go, girl. <laughs> <laughs> That's fantastic. Thank you. And Danielle, in your work, you put a lot of emphasis on, first of all, public service. Your record of nonprofit service is nonpareil. Um, you have even run for office, right, uh, um, here in Massachusetts. What do you think about this idea, the notion of someone uh, like yourself, uh, who is an intellectual, a very well-educated person, an author and so forth, someone like a, like a Katanji Brown-Jackson, what do you feel about the role that people should have in public service who, are, who have so many privileges given to them? And I'm quoting her, by the way, when I say that. Absolutely. Well, my daughter is also really excited about mm. the nomination and anticipated appointment of, of, of our future justice, Katanji Brown-Jackson. And my daughter likes to say that she wants to just celebrate what she calls blurds, black nerds. <laughs> All right. So here we have in our justice, another black nerd. And like you, I also have had other names and shadows in my spirit as I have watched the story of her life and hearings. And we were talking earlier about the first African-American woman to earn a law degree, Sadie Tanner Alexander, yes. in the 1920s. So it's taken us 100 years, to mm -hmm. Randall's point about how long it's taken. Mm -hmm. There has always been black excellence. Mm -hmm. There's always been black excellence. And Martin Luther King Jr., in Testament of Hope, I think it was one of his last essays, um, said, you know, the, the really important thing is we have to get to a place of full sharing of power and responsibility. He said, that's going to be the hardest for us. And that's what we're really watching, where we've had generations, centuries of black excellence. And the question is, how do you hook that up to a full sharing of power and responsibility? And that's what we're watching now. And yes, I mean, we've got blurs, black nerds all over the place, serving in all kinds of ways. And I think all across the country, it's a moment for looking at the question of how do we remove barriers to full participation and that full sharing of power and responsibility. Uh, so we have to move um, from excellence to that full sharing. I think that's the work at hand. Uh, you brought up Martin Luther King. And let's turn to you. Um, you wrote a fabulous piece about the role of Martin Luther, uh, rather what people have forgotten about Martin Luther King's famous I Have a Dream speech. Uh, I read that piece and I was um, deeply moved about you know, your thinking process. What have people forgotten about Martin Luther King? Well, up at the college where I teach, we actually did a course one time on the sociology 
of Dr. Martin Luther King. He was a sociology major. And you can see the sociological analysis, hear it. We used Testament of Hope at one point, and the students, when they finished reading it, they said, what he's talking about then is still important now. That was number one. Number two, they were amazed at what had happened after 1963, after this speech, which was not originally an I Have a Dream speech. He, he had talked about the dream at the Detroit March that was organized by C.L. Franklin, Aretha Franklin's father. And Mahalia Jackson had been there at that march. He had the speech. And really what was happening was Let Freedom Ring was in that speech. And um, Mahalia Jackson, like a Baptist congregation, you know, leaned forward and another woman raising her voice mm -hmm. to be heard, telling about the dream, Martin. So he, he it, like bringing an engine into an already um, built car frame, he brought that in and then proceeded. But the Let Freedom Ring, most people don't pay attention to the places he is speaking of in that Let Freedom Ring speech. And he talks about Lookout Mountain in Tennessee. Mm -hmm. And then he talks about Stone Mountain in Georgia. And those were hardcore clan shrines that he was speaking to. He was speaking to that tradition in, in and that. And once students know what those places are, but they don't know. They, you know, they hear the oratory, but they don't know what he's talking about in terms of a holistic vision of the United States that he lifted up in that speech. He um, he goes on after that speech to continue to write and to continue to organize in so many ways. And reading his Where Do We Go From Here, Chaos or Community, you find him talking about many of the actions in our society or the inactions in our society that needed to be addressed. And he used the word racism when he's talking about cultural erasure, the need, you know, the problem of the miseducation, not only of black people, but also of white people. And where have we gone from there? As uh, Councillor Simmons said, yes, we have Black History Month. Yes, we have the variety of history months, but we also have changing curricula that actually include and we are in battle over those curricula because they are effectively including and uh, people are misrepresenting the battle as critical race theory if they actually knew what critical race theory was they would oh my goodness they would run because it's difficult reading the real stuff is difficult reading but the fact that we are battling over this still is a, it's a good thing, it's a terrible thing, but the fact that it's on the public table, it's no longer confined to the segregated black schools of 1926. It's no longer confined to our church settings, which was my first mm -hmm. engagement with what we call Negro History Week. And, <laughs> and my father, who was born in 1919, would occasionally slip and say Negro History Week, but he was the youth director who brought in the film and had us learn about Haiti and so many other things. So it's both growth. As you say, we, we've come so far, and yet there is still so much to do. But it's a discovery process. Making change is like scientific discovery. Once you learn this, what's the next step? What's the next step? What do we see? And Dr. King made us see that after we got the big rock of Jim Crow, that legal structure out of the way, 
And one of the things that I used as a teaching tool in my classroom was Pauli Murray's compilation called State's Laws of Race and Color, where you see all the laws that existed in the 48 states in 1950. I'd go into class and say, pick a state. And one time I had this young man, to be fresh, he goes, Idaho. And when we got through going through that list to see the laws that tried to exclude and effectively excluded Chinese immigrants from owning land, the Alien Land Act, and most people don't realize Idaho had the largest mass lynching of any state. I'm not a mass killing because we start, start to think of St. Helena, Arkansas, and Tulsa, et cetera, but a mass lynching of Chinese immigrants, 17 and one killing. Then you realize that race is something that's been throughout the United States. The fact that this, this white supremacist wanted to move to Idaho and start an all-white town, and then he did 23 and me and discovered he was 14% African. It was just <laughs> God has a good sense of humor. But these are the kinds of things that we have to learn and, and teach so that people understand, yes, we've come forward, but now that we got the big rock of Jim Crow out the way, we still have this tremendous structure of inequality that has been effectively deposited with the help of Jim Crow, and how do we deal with that now? Over to you, please, Danielle. Well, and land is at the center of the story. It was at the center of the story you just told. We're sitting here at the Land Institute. I actually thought that was a really extraordinary way to start. And as we look around the world, and we do have incredible inequality. If you just take Massachusetts as an example, there's a staggering racial wealth gap. So, you know, the median wealth held by a white family in Boston is about $250,000. For an African-American family, it's about $8. Um, you look at life expectancy, New Bedford, life expectancy is about 68 in um, Newton, 94. You see these incredible differentials. And at the end of the day, the story of land use is actually really at the heart of that. We have a housing crisis in the country, the whole country. Um, definitely have a housing crisis here in Massachusetts. And the way in which access to land has been restricted over time is at the center of that racial wealth gap. And so much else flows from that in terms of access to health and the other kinds of resources that bring well-being. So, you know, Cheryl is absolutely right that it was one thing to move aside the legal structure of Jim Crow, um, but there's just a huge amount of work to do, actually, to uh, move forward towards transformation, um, move our institutions, our legal structures to full participation of all people. So some of that is ballot access for running for office, some of that is voting rights, but then it is also things like approaching land use in different ways that really opens up um, mobility and opportunity and affordability and gives people a chance to build wealth. Um, so there's a lot more that can be said about that policy nitty gritty, um, but I really appreciated the history that Cheryl yes. sketched. In your current book, Say It Loud, mm -hmm. it's 39 essays. What are some of the issues that you identify that you are most concerned about and you were famous for being dispassionate, but I'm going to add, say passionate about it as well um, in terms of, you know, where we are headed. You know, in that book, the very first essay, in a way, echoes much of the conversation that we've, we've been having. Because the first essay in the, uh, Say It Loud is uh, an essay called um, Shall We Overcome? And what the essay is about are, it's, it's, it's about two large traditions of thinking 
in America uh, about race. Uh, one tradition is the pessimistic tradition. It's the tradition that says, no, we shall not overcome. It's the tradition that suggests that our history of, 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 of racism is insuperable. And there are very um, uh, smart people, very uh, impressive people who have held that position. Among the people who've held that position would be Alexis de Tocqueville, uh, Thomas Jefferson, uh, Abraham Lincoln. In the black nationalist tradition, it would be uh, Ma Malcolm X. It would be my colleague Derek Bell, you know, the permanence of racism. On the other hand, on the other hand, there is an optimistic tradition. And uh, we've heard a good bit about the optimistic tradition. In the optimistic tradition, the great spokesperson in the 19th century would be the great Frederick Douglass, who made speeches, you know, within a, around here, mm -hmm. around yes, here, that's right. great speeches. In fact, even, even before the abolition of slavery, Douglass was once asked, do you foresee a time when, uh, when uh, people of different races can be neighbors and, be, and, 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 and encounter one another as equal and as neighbors. And even before the abolition of slavery, he said, yes, I, I can foresee that day. In the 20th century, the great spokesperson would be Martin Luther King Jr. Uh, if one takes a look at his, his, his first speech, as a civil rights uh, activist, December 5th, 1955, announcing the Montgomery bus boycott. And then, of course, I Have a Dream, 1963. And hours before he was killed. Yes. I've be been to the mountaintop. I've been to the mountaintop. I might seen not get there with you, but I have seen the promised lands. I mean, he was the great optimist. Now, you know, in the 21st century, in the 21st century, probably the most consequential racial optimist would be Barack Obama. But there's, you know, we're 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 still struggling with this, and I, I have to say, I, I have been an optimist for my adult life. I'm still in the optimistic camp, but um, I'm a chastened optimist. I think I was frankly a little bit on the complacent side, and uh, at this moment, I am filled with trepidation. I I have hope. But I also have more fear. What about are some the of the things that concern you the most? Well, what was the most important legislative action taken during the Second Reconstruction? What was the most effective single statute passed during the period between 1950 and 1970, the Second Reconstruction? I think somebody can make a very strong argument that the Voting Rights Act of 1965 was the most important, the most effective. Well, the Supreme Court recently, in other words, our Supreme Court, has eviscerated the Voting Rights Act of 1965. If you had asked me 10, 15 years ago, do you, you know, can you imagine the evisceration of the Voting Rights Act of 1965? I said, no. Well, it has happened. And not only has it happened, but we see that vote, vote, vote suppression is on the march. And uh, our present Supreme Court, unfortunately, doesn't seem to be uh, 
you know, mind to take that on. And so I'm very worried. And um, you mentioned, in, you know, at the outset, you mentioned uh, the struggle over the presidency. You know, January 6th should be on people's mind. There, there, was, there was an effort to take over the Capitol. There was an effort to prevent the peaceful um, transfer of executive power in the United States. So, again, I'm, I'm hopeful because of, you know, efforts that are undertaken by, you know, millions of Americans, but I'm also worried. Thanks to our wonderful guests on today's program, Randall Kennedy, Cheryl Townsend-Jilks, and Daniel Allen. And let me thank the Lincoln Institute and Harvard Square Business for their generosity in making today's event possible. You can go to the website if you want to know more about our programs, cambridgeforum.org. Thank you very much. <laughs>